All right. Well, we are in the book of Ephesians, and we finally made it to chapter 3. And it's so funny because, in a way, um, chapter 3, verse (laughs) 1, is a, it's like a digression of a digression. But it's a digression that's supposed to get him back on track, but uh, he kind of gets on a tangent again. You might be saying, Pastor, what are you talking about? Well, he's about to, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul's about to start praying or offer a prayer, but he interrupts himself in verse 2, and it's not until verse 14 when he gets to the prayer. So if you notice in chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, and then uh, verse 14, for this reason. Well, what happens between that is kind of a tangent, okay? His, his mind just gets started on thinking about and praising God for the gospel. Now, the thing is, he's already digressing in a prayer. Go back to chapter 1, all the way back to chapter 1, and verse 15. You see the same phrase, for this reason, right? Because I've heard of your faith in Lord Jesus, your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What does he pray? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and so on and so on and so on. All right, so Ephesians 1, 15, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you would know these wonderful, beautiful truths. But where does he get, where does he stop praying and start preaching, let's say? Well, it's a little bit artificial that in uh, your Bibles, it says Ephesians 2, right? That's, uh, my Bible is a gigantic 2. You got little verse numbers in there. Understand when Paul was writing his letter, he didn't write Chapter 1, blah, 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 and and start marking little 1s, 2s, and 3s for the verses. That's things that Christians did after because it's very helpful to refer to things Paul said and point to a chapter and verse. But when Paul was writing this, he just wrote it all out. And uh, chapter 2, it starts with and, which connects it to all the things that Paul was praying that they would know. In other words, Paul is still kind of just talking about praying that he wants the Ephesians to know something. And verse, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul is kind of like going back. Okay, okay, I'm, I, I was praying. I know. I get it. And just when he's to start to get back to his prayer, he interrupts himself again. And then it's not until 14 that he gets back on the prayer. And you know that it's sort of all one big prayer because he finally ends it in verse 21 with amen. All right? Now, <laughs> I, I, I love this, um, and it's, I love this because Paul um, <laughs> is sitting there, and you got to imagine this. He's in prison right now. He's under house arrest in Rome. He's got a Roman guard uh, chained to him all the time, but it's a house arrest, meaning he can still receive guests. He can still write and do things, um, and he has received word about the Ephesians. 
And he's thinking, man, every time I think about those Ephesians, I just pray for them. My heart is burdened for them. I give thanks to them. And that's a very similar thing to a lot of his letters where he talks about every time I think about you, every time I hear about you, I pray for you. But uh, (laughs) as he hears about or as it comes into his mind, I need to write a letter to those Ephesians. Man, every time I think about it, I just start praying. You know what? I'm going to write down what I pray for them. And he writes down a sermon. <laughs> he writes down some of the most rich theology of the epistles outside of Romans in these first few chapters of Ephesians. But they kind of have bled together. It just for Paul, um, even when he's praying for people, he can't help but incorporate and think about very deep truths about who God is. It just blurs together. And in a way, as a pastor reading this, I, I've been... Uh, I've been reading the epistles lately with this mindset of like, what, you know, what do I learn about Paul as I read these letters? And one of the things I've been learning in Ephesians is just, this is like, this is how Paul prays. He prays and then he starts thinking of all this beautiful things about the gospel and about Jews and Gentiles coming together, about all the richness of the inheritance, all these things. And it's just sparked by the idea of prayer. I'm not saying that he's exactly praying this all the time, that every time he he thought of a church, he just thought of like a whole letter, but just how easily Paul would go in and out of praying, thinking about someone, thinking about deep things about God, going back to prayer, getting distracted again, as we'll see in Ephesians 3. And I think, you know, maybe there's some hope for me because that happens a lot too. I pray, I get a little distracted. I don't know about you. Start thinking about something else. I get back to the prayer. Sometimes good things, sometimes bad. But just, I mean, what a, what a human thing, I suppose, uh, for the apostle to do. Uh, although it's very apostolic as well, because his distractions are not about, you know, oh, I forgot to do the laundry or something like that. When he gets distracted, when Paul gets distracted from his prayer, he thinks of a sermon. So uh, I got to still attain to that, I guess. Not quite there yet. Um, but I, I just, I just kind of love that. I, I, it's, I don't know that that's like a huge point um, to make in the sermon, although I'm making it a huge point. Uh, but I just appreciate uh, seeing this because um, Paul, again, he is sitting here. Again, let's set the context. So he talks about being a prisoner of Christ there in verse 1. He is chained to a Roman soldier while he's writing this letter. Now, Romans, of course, are Gentiles. They're not Jewish people. They're Gentile people. They're part of the nations of the world. And Paul has been thinking about the unity that is between Jews and Gentiles through the gospel, through the blood of Christ. Now, here he is. He's literally chained to one. They're literally stuck together. Wherever one goes, the other has to go. But I don't think they were just physically united. There's a high likelihood that at least some of those Roman soldiers that he was bonded together with not only heard the gospel from Paul, but actually became believers, became united to Paul spiritually. Isn't that a funny thought? It's almost certain that some of these men were also his brothers in Christ that he was chained to. What a funny relationship. I say that based on Philippians um, chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. You don't have to turn there, but it's like the next uh, epistle over. Uh, Philippians 1, 12 through 13, same context of Paul being in prison, house arrest. He says, I want you to know, brothers, 
that what has happened to me, that is him being in prison and jailed for his proclamation of the gospel, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So all the guards know, like how, how could they not know? You know, you are chained to the apostle Paul. You know, he's not stuck in there with them. They're stuck in there with him, right? So he has a captive audience. They think he's the captive, but no, they're the captive audience. And almost certainly, you would imagine, and you'll see actually in the end of Philippians, Paul says that all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household, meaning that somehow, some way, likely through Paul's imprisonment here, people in Caesar's household, the, the maids and the cooks and, and all the people in there, they started hearing the gospel too. So you can imagine, I, I can't say it was authoritatively for sure, but um, you can imagine that some of the people that heard Paul as they were chained to Paul also became Christians, in which case, when Paul is talking about the kind of unity that ex exists between Jews and Gentiles now, that's something he was almost literally expressing as being chained next to one. I just thought that was an interesting uh, connection and, and picture there. Uh, now, Paul begins in chapter 3, verse 1, almost starting to get back into his prayer, but thinking about this some more. Uh, he says that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul was there because he is being, bringing Jesus Christ to non-Jewish people. But it wasn't really that he was arrested by the Romans or, or he's being persecuted by the Jews. Notice that Paul thinks it's Jesus that brought him to prison in order to bring more Gentiles to Christ. As a result of Paul's ministry here, um, he wasn't hindered from preaching the gospel to Gentiles. In fact, he's exposed to a whole new group of them that may have not otherwise heard, including those of Caesar's household. I think just one application here is that the Lord brings you where you need to be for the sake of gospel ministry. We have to embrace that. The family you have, maybe you're not particularly fond of the family that God gave you. Well, um, that might be the case that they're not the greatest, you know, this lineage to be a part of, but you're a part of it for the sake of the gospel. Maybe you don't like your neighborhood and, and where you live and you can't quite get out of it because of the economy is so bad and all these things. Well, guess what? Where you live is where God has put you for the sake of the gospel. The job you work, the stores you visit, sometimes even the places where your car breaks down or the hospital you end up at because you broke your, you know, your ankle. Um, God is bringing you to the places that then you need to be in order for the gospel to be proclaimed. Now, it's not, I don't mean that, you know, you always got to have a track in your pocket or something, and that if you didn't share the gospel while you're in the back of a, you know, emergency vehicle or something, you failed. It's just even you being there as a Christian, even you, even someone knowing after you got out of the hospital that that person goes to Irvine Community Church or that person is a Christian, that's part of the testimony. I'm not saying it, it's gospel as explicit as preaching the gospel 
word for word when you're in the line at the supermarket or something like that. That might be part of it, but I, I can almost guarantee that part of Paul's gospel ministry to those Roman guards was not just in his words, but in his actions and his behaviors. How he conducted himself as a prisoner was just as important as what he said as a prisoner of Christ. How did he show that he was a follower of Jesus? And we know from other letters that he conducted himself in a Christ-like way, even there, even in not such a great situation. So the Lord brings you where you need to be for gospel ministry. Secondly, as we look at now the mystery of grace, we need to see that the, the mystery of grace is that grace causes salvation and suffering, that there is saving and suffering involved with the mystery of grace. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Verse 2. Uh, Paul begins his, his, again, another one of his digressions um, by basically saying, now obviously you guys know, you Ephesians know, God gave me this responsibility that landed me in prison. This is God's purpose. This is God's plan. This is a stewardship meaning God made me in charge of something that he, uh, this is something he gave to me. I didn't necessarily choose this life. God chose it for me. Well, when did Paul receive this stewardship? Well, famously in Acts chapter 9, we have uh, Paul's salvation recounted by the hand of Luke, and uh, famously on the road to Damascus, on the way to persecute Christians there in Damascus, he is stopped by a bright light. Uh, it is Jesus Christ. This is after he's ascended into heaven, but uh, he is uh, appearing in a, in a vision to Saul, and Saul is blinded by this light. And this is what Jesus says to him on the road to Damascus, Acts 9, 15, and 16. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. There's two things to notice about the stewardship that Paul received. And they both speak of the kind of grace that God gave to him. Kind of tend to have like a, sometimes a one-dimensional view of grace. But grace is much more than just, oh, he, he saves me, I didn't deserve it. Um, there's much more to that. Notice that Jesus says, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. So it was the grace of God alone that Paul was chosen to serve this noble purpose, this glorious purpose of carrying Christ's name. I mean, again, he was on the road. He's on the way to go hurt some Christians, put them in jail, take their stuff, perhaps even stand by as Christians were killed as he stood there and watched Stephen, the first Christian martyr, be killed. But it was God's grace alone that would save Paul on that road to Damascus and call him to this purpose. God's grace saves, of course. We see it here. It, 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 it doesn't matter what he's done. It doesn't matter where he's going how sin-filled either or both were, God can save. It's completely gracious. And we see even in the statement that he is going to carry his name to the Gentiles and kings, that God's grace, it doesn't discriminate between Jews and Gentiles. God's grace can reconcile anyone to God. 
And now Paul had this burden, this stewardship to bring the same message that saved a wretch like him to the rest of the world. So on the one hand, Paul had a gracious responsibility to spread the mystery of grace to Gentiles. And it took the grace of God to save him to do that. But on the other hand, Paul's stewardship also involved what I'll call the grace of suffering. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name, Jesus said. That little word for at the beginning of that statement, for I will show him how much, means that the way that Paul was going to carry Christ's name was through suffering. Why is suffering considered a part of grace? Grace seems to me like something that rescues me out of suffering, that takes me out of suffering. I was suffering in my sin. So how is it that grace might also prompt suffering or even necessitate suffering? 1 Peter 2, 19 through 22. 1 Peter 2, 19. Peter writes, For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. How could grace ever coincide with suffering if grace is supposed to be the thing that gets me out of suffering? Well, it's in this that if you are doing the right thing and you are suffering for doing the right thing, God's grace is shown that you don't forsake God while you're in the midst of the suffering, instead looking to blessing other people around you. That's exactly the footsteps that Jesus left to follow. See, his suffering was very gracious because it was very unjust. So when he endured it, it communicated something about how worthy God is and how righteous he is and the, and the desire to love other people enough to be patient with them even when they're afflicting you with harm unjustly. So Paul, who's there in prison suffering for preaching the gospel, was thankful for the opportunities it gave him to preach the gospel. It's a gracious way of thinking to think that grace doesn't just mean I get saved out of suffering. It means that in the midst of suffering, something good can come out of it. Maybe not for me, but for others. And there's no, nothing more gracious than that other people would be blessed by anything that you do, whether suffer or whether you, you share. It is a gracious thing for others to benefit from whatever you're going through. So when Paul talks about the grace that was given to him as a stewardship for the sake of the Gentiles, he even means that suffering is a part of that grace, his salvation and his suffering. The consequences of the good news isn't always good times. By application, we should understand that grace does not mean that you will never, ever have to go through any kind of trial or difficulty. Rather, grace is the assurance that when you do go through trials and sufferings, Christ can be made more glorious in your life as you endure it and as you suffer it. It's a, it's a hard way to think at times, but um, you're, you're communicating that there is something more happening 
when I'm being afflicted, whether it's physical trials, emotional trials, financial trials, when I show that I still put God first, it communicates something about what I think about God. And that's a gracious thing to show your kids, your neighbors, your friends, your family, other people in the church is, you know, yeah, life is really hard right now. But my hope isn't in this alone. It's in what the Lord will do. It's a gracious thing for others. Next, Paul talks about the mystery of revelation. He says in verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery of grace is not just one that saves and also suffers, but it's also one that opens eyes and hearts. The mystery of grace, it opens eyes and hearts. When did Paul receive the knowledge of this revelation? We know when he received the stewardship, it was there on the road to Damascus. Right? You're going you're gonna to be saved and you're going to suffer. Here's your burden, Paul. But when did Paul figure all of this stuff out about Jews and Gentiles and, and Christ is the fulfillment of the law and he's the promised Messiah and everyone needs to submit to him and all of those things? Where did he understand and get all that? Now, you know, part of me says, well, maybe he just like instant download. You know, when on that road to Damascus, God just like just filled his brain with all of the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and, and he figured it all out, and it was just like almost a passive thing. He just, like all of it downloaded. That sounds great, by the way. I mean, there's many times I just wish, God, help me. Why can't I just get this? Why can't you just pop it into my brain? Why all the work of going to the text, you know, trying to read commentators and hear sermons and all these things? Well, I actually don't think, maybe downloaded isn't the right term, but... Um, <laughs> I don't think Paul had it downloaded to his brain, and he had no work for it. If you remember, when um, Paul was stopped on the road to Damascus, the bright light that was Christ, it blinded him. He was blinded for days after this. He had to be led by the hand into a city uh, where he would meet a man that was going to um, heal his eyesight. So he was physically blind for a while after he encountered Jesus. But after his period of blindness, the first thing he does is he goes to be baptized, which, think about this, if he immediately believed in Jesus, does it matter if he's blind or not to go be baptized? No, well, you know, he's just like, hey, if he, if he was a full-on believer and, and follower of Jesus Christ, why did he take a few days? Well, I, I think there's a picture here. Now, this is a little bit of, uh, I'll admit, a little bit of conjecture, but I, I think it stands to reason because it, it, it makes sense of why he was, had to endure this period of physical blindness. Well, it was, I think, during that time that Paul actually was spiritually seeing and that the culmination of him spiritually seeing and putting together after he'd encountered Jesus is, you know, he's the Messiah. All the prophets, Moses, the law, they all spoke of him. And when he was 
ready to be baptized. That's when he was healed of his physical blindness to match his spiritual sight. And he could see physically and spiritually at that point. In any case, I, it is likely that um, this event of Jesus stopping on the way to Damascus was as much an, an opening of his spiritual eyes to see the word of God as it truly is that we're talking about here in terms of his, uh, this revelation that was given to him um, that was made known to him. Um, so when Paul says that it was made known him by revelation, he means that God had to show it to him and make him see it. God had to open his eyes and his heart to know Jesus from the scriptures. And Paul, I think, even reiterates this when he attributes even the insights that he's given in this letter so far, not to his own intellect or wisdom, but who does he give the credit to? The Spirit, the Spirit who revealed it to the holy apostles and the prophets. The sons of men in other generations is just a way of saying that no one else in the world, prior to Jesus being born as a human, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins, rising from the dead, understood that Jesus was the Son of God and the Son of Man, come to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. No one understood that, even though it was, in a way, so plainly hidden in the Old Testament. Now, we did talk about the apostles and prophets last week, so I won't go into all that again, but they're the foundations of the church, primarily in what was revealed to them by the Spirit. Now, in terms of an application, I think it does kind of go with everything we said about election back in Ephesians uh, chapter 1. <laughs> People don't see that Jesus is the Messiah, apart from God revealing it to them. It's not that it's not there, because even Jesus, if you remember on the road to Emmaus with two disciples, there's kind of a parallel there with, with Paul on the road to Damascus. But, you know, Jesus told them from the law and the prophets how the Messiah had to suffer and die. So he went through the whole Old Testament, but they didn't get it. You know when they got it? Is when their eyes were open. You know, Jesus broke bread and their eyes were open. And then they realized it's Jesus and then Jesus left. You see, so even though Jesus himself was explaining the scriptures to them, they didn't see it until Jesus opened their eyes, you could say. So you say, on the one hand, there's, there's election. There's, there's God choosing who he's going to reveal to. Again, we already wrestled through all that, right? We all have that <laughs> clear um, or sort of clear about predestination, all those things. But simultaneously, though, of course, you know, there's a human responsibility. Again, I, you know, you, you just deal with it. God says, I reveal it. I'm the one who shows. I'm the one who opens eyes. But also, this is your fault. Romans 1.18 says that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So we choose to not see it because we want to do unrighteous things. We also have many passages that talk about Satan's effects. You know, Satan, we've been blinded by Satan. So there is a reason why people don't see such a plainly, uh, you know, plainly hidden truth in the Bible. Um, there's both our own sin that clouds that, but also the God of this age has blinded sinners as well as a both and. Uh, again, we don't we've got to take all the time to try and reconcile 
predestination and, and human will and all that. But um, there's, there's a both end here. And Paul is making very clear that it's not that he was so much smarter than everyone else, than the other apostles, the other Jews, the Gentiles. The only way he's saying, I could have known this, even though it was very plain, is for God to open up my eyes and my heart and show it to me, reveal it to me. It's not new truth. It is truth that was there in plain sight in the Old Testament. Or, you know, Paul didn't call it the Old Testament. It was just the scriptures to him. But for him, it wasn't a matter of ingenuity. It wasn't a matter of cleverness. It wasn't a matter of his superior schooling or that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He humbles himself to say that I couldn't only know this if by God's own hand revealing it to me, unfolding it to me. Now, there's some work or you know, effort on his part in the sense that, again, I think once his eyes were open um, spiritually, while his physical eyes were closed, he understood what the Old Testament was saying. It's not new knowledge. When we talk about a mystery, we're not talking about new knowledge. And now it's maybe a, a good... A helpful time to talk about what the word mystery is. It's obviously not used in the same way of like a whodunit novel, like Sherlock Holmes or anything like that. Paul uses the word mystery to mean something that was hidden at first to be revealed at the right time. And not that it requires being as smart as Sherlock Holmes. Instead, it's something that once it is shown plainly, everyone can understand it, even Jews or even Gentiles, and they can become one through Christ. That's the, the main mystery here of the gospel that Paul's emphasizing is that Jews and Gentiles can be one body. But again, there's, there's kind of a both and there that God has to open the eyes, but you have to be willing to see it could say. Um, or another way to put it is, Scripture is the thing that they need to know, but they can't unless God opens their eyes. But it's only through bringing people the Word that they're going to understand it. It's a little bit confusing, but it's like Scripture is the key and the treasure. How are they going to get to the treasure of understanding God's Word? Well, you've got to give people God's Word. You've got to preach the gospel to them. That might seem uh, confusing, but what would be the problem if the key to the treasure was something else? What's more important, the key or the treasure? Was the treasure have any worth without the key? So if I said the key to unlocking, you know, God's word and God's blessing is you got to take this ten part course, or you got to go to this certain church. You know, many many religions um, that that are kind of Christian. Um, were started by, my, by men and women that effectively said, you know, um, I know you got your Bible there, but to really understand it, you got to have this, this key, which was delivered to me and me alone, whether that's Joseph Smith or, you know, whoever else, right? So um, it's very critical that we'd say, you know, we believe that the key and the treasure are both Scripture, that the gospel, which is Scripture, opens the treasure, which is understanding and knowing the scripture. Does that make sense a little bit? That's kind of the, the nature of, uh, of revelation here. Okay, um, so um, uh, Paul received this by revelation. So none of us here should be able to say, 
You know, the reason I became a Christian is because um, I, I figured it out before everyone else did. Or I'm smarter than my neighbors. They just will never get it. Or, you know, they're, um, they're so backwards. They belong to a different church, another religion. They can't ever get it. No, this humbles us by putting us sort of all on the same playing field. Paul's almost saying, I'm dependent on the same holy apostles and prophets that you are to understand this. And he's a holy apostle. So uh, I think if Paul can have the humility to say that, then we ought to have the same humility. And therefore, we shouldn't ever um, think we're better than others because we know what Scripture says, right? So maybe that's another application there. Lastly, and uh, we'll kind of actually do this the most quickly because it's what we've been talking about for like a month now. <laughs> the thing that got Paul on this tangent, he's going to go on a little bit more. Of course, next time we're together, we'll go through 7 through 13. But he just can't stop thinking about, he can't stop thinking about how Jews and Gentiles are, are together in one new body. It just, he can't get over it. Now, again, you and I, I'm a Gentile, so I take this for granted. Again, you have to step into his world and his mind. The Jewish people thought they were the chosen people above and beyond everybody else. A special place. They hold a special place in God's heart. And so for him to say now, and I'm not going to elaborate a lot on it because we've talked about this a lot, a lot, a lot. But um, the mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, meaning that they are children worthy of inheritance, just like the Jewish people, that they're members of the same body. Again, that there is no distinctions in this church unit between Jews and Gentiles, or really any kind of distinctions, that we are all united in Christ. Maybe different parts of the body, different functions, but we're, we're one party. Just like I don't, I don't think of my finger as distinct from me or my lungs as distinct from me. It's all me. They're different parts, but it's all me. So Jews, Gentiles, every person is one. And that they are partakers of the promise. In other words, they are participating wholly in the plan of God in his blessing, in his grace, in his mercy, all people, including Gentiles, everyone who's put their faith in Jesus are equal partakers of that. Okay, so again, you want to elaborate on that more, you can listen to some previous sermons, but just understand that this is so compelling a thought that Paul interrupts himself twice now to talk about it. He's talking about prayer, but he can't help talking about you know, Jews and Gentiles come to, he wants to go back to prayer, and then he goes back to talking about Jews and Gentiles again. Why is that so critical to Paul? And why should that be critical to us? It, 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 it just tells you, Paul's heart and focus is on the gospel. He's chained up to some Roman guard. Now, in this imprisonment, it's very likely that he uh, he is freed. There's some people who have a different take, but this is what's considered Paul's first Roman imprisonment, and he gets freed. He's there two years. He gets freed, and there's going to be another Roman imprisonment, and that's the one where we believe Paul even made it all the way to Caesar and was able to share the gospel with him and then was beheaded for his faith. Paul had a singular purpose to preach the gospel. It was such a priority to him. He couldn't not, it was an intrusive thought. I mean, I wish my intrusive thoughts, you know, the ones you can't control, that just pop in them, were 
you know how awesome it is that Jews and Gentiles were all saved by the same gospel? I would love for that to be my intrusive thought. Instead, it's all this dumb stuff. It's like a song that the kids are listening to that they can't stop listening to. I wish that my intrusive thought was, how beautiful is it that the one place on earth where there's this unity and love and community and body is the church? What a unique opportunity to celebrate that when we take the Lord's table in just a few minutes. That's what we're doing when we do that. It's just as much about the reminder of Jesus Christ's shed blood and his body sacrificed for us as it is to say, this is the thing that unites us together. We're all from different backgrounds and, and cultures, different heritages, different families. We came here a lot of, by way of a lot of different things. Some people lived it their whole life. Some people have moved here. All these things, some people are visiting. But God, if, if you are a Christian, God has put us together in one family. I mean, Paul just loved that idea. It soaked up his brain and his thoughts so much that when he's trying to pray for something, it just butts right in and he's got to tell you about it. I just feel sorry for those Roman guards. You know, they were chained to him all the time. Yes, Paul, I get it. But they got a rich education, didn't they? But he couldn't get over. Paul could not get over this truth. Maybe there's something that that reveals in our own hearts, perhaps an inadequacy. John MacArthur, it's the quote on the, on, the, on the bulletin. He says, our task is the proclamation of the gospel. Neglecting it is the spiritual equivalent of a skilled heart surgeon abandoning his profession to become a makeup artist spending his time making people look better rather than saving lives. He just has a great way of putting things sometimes. What is the church about? What is our task? It's the proclamation of the gospel. It's bringing Jews and Gentiles together under one body through the blood of Christ. It is to tell our neighbors and our friends and our community that they can be right with God, not by the works of their own righteousness, but by the completed work of Jesus on the cross. Anything, it's so compelling a thought that it's his distracting thought. (laughs) Like, you know, your distracting thought is usually stuff that's like lesser priority, right? But he's so consumed by it that he, he interrupts talking about Jesus to talk about Jesus. You know, that's, that's an amazing, beautiful thing. I pray we can get there, maybe not individually, right? But as a church, that we wouldn't get distracted <laughs> about these other things that are going on. That we would be so compelled, so drawn, so in love with the gospel that we would only be distracted from worshiping Jesus with the gospel. I mean, it's a funny thing. It's, I know that's a funny way to think about it because we're just saying the same thing. But that's Paul's example here. His distracting thought is Jesus. He distracts himself with thinking about Jesus. We're thinking about Jesus. Boy, I want to get there. But one thing I helps is when we as a church are encouraging each other to that. That's why we're here. That's why we celebrate the communion. That's what I want to do. Um, that's what I need you to do for me. Remind me about Jesus. Remind me about the gospel. Remind me again how glorious it is that we can have peace with him, that anyone can have peace with him. Let's be that kind of church. Heavenly Father, thank you. Again, for your word, it's so uh, humbling, and I often uh, 
We can't even admit it, get, get distracted so often. Um, but I know that the most glorious and engrossing and beautiful thought I can have is that, that I, I can be saved by grace and, and that other people can too. Why would we ever move from that? Uh, help, help us. When we get distracted by the, our temptations and our lusts, when we get distracted by the fears all around us and the alarms, when we get uh, tempted to be comfortable and, and, and lazy, distract us with the gospel. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for each one here. I know you've drawn them by your grace to be in this um, place at this time. It's not an accident, so I thank you for each one, and I pray that as we remember uh, what Christ has done for us as we celebrate communion, uh, that we would be refreshed again in our thoughts about you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.